From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Bear Podcast. Adam, you feeling okay? You got a little cough drop going on I there? I got a cough drop. You know, my, my, <laughs> my, you know, my throat's dry. It's like, it's, it's cold out there. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I'm not sick. I want everyone to know I'm not sick. Mm-hmm. And I also did test for COVID this morning just in case. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, I cannot be in a studio with Keith and Joanna and get I them, appreciate get them COVID. Right before Thanksgiving. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. Do you think we'll be testing ourselves for COVID for the rest of our lives? Uh, at least for the next like three to five years. Hmm. It's just hard for me to see how it ends. Like, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it ends because like they stop making tests and people are just like, whatever. But it's, it is, you said that you tested yourself for COVID. And I was like, I mean, it makes sense to me on the one hand. On the other hand, it's like, every time I have a tickle in my throat, am I going to take a COVID test for the rest of my life? This is not meant to be a criticism of testing yourself. I think it's fine. I just, I'm not sure. I think until, as long as it's still considered to be like, the the cold you don't want to the virus you don't want to get mm-hmm. like for example and also that we have a test for it right so the other virus is sort of floating around right now are the flu which I don't have because I went and got tested for the flu and I also have the flu shot and the flu shot's pretty good this year mm-hmm. or what is it RG RSV RSV, RSV. Mm-hmm. and that we've never been able to test for and really only affects little kids even though I could get it but yeah you know I won't go to the hospital so, I think as long as I can go to like a little testing tent on the street and they're still around and they still exist. I will, but yeah, I don't know. Joanna's keeping those tents in business. <laughs> <laughs> they're still everywhere. They are. And I've run out of my free tests. I know, I'm just going to buy some at CVS. They're so expensive. I know. Why? Anyway. That's stupid. But anyways, yeah, so little cough drop from the cold. It's like when the cold, get, when it's really cold here. Yeah. And then it, like a cold snap like this my, week. My throat gets all dry and I don't like it. Buy mm-hmm. a humidifier, Adam. I know. I can't. I can't. Why? My wife has curly hair and <laughs> uh, she told me that we cannot have the humidifier in the bedroom because uh, it will it will mess up her hair. So I suffer in silence. <laughs> in silence in, and to our podcast. <laughs> On air. But you know, I also I had this realization – I had this realization yesterday. Uh, so not yesterday. After we recorded uh, last week's podcast, for, like for Thanksgiving, when I sort of had some comments about the in-laws. Anyways, I realized Naomi doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can say whatever I want. So this is like a safe space <laughs> that I can share with all of you, and she doesn't know. Joanna, maybe for for the holidays, you need to buy Adam a leather couch that he can lie on, lie down on while we record this podcast. Yeah, she doesn't know. <laughs> we have many here. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah. Somebody can excerpt the transcript and send it to she her. She doesn't know. No, you don't know. She because it it makes her it, it, like it makes her nervous. Mm-hmm. She like doesn't like to know what I say or you know whatever. So I'm like, it's all good. So yeah. So we, that's why we don't have a humidifier. Sorry. To be fair, my wife does not listen either. Hi dear. <laughs> exactly. Hi dear. <laughs> so um, what you been drinking, Zach? Uh, I think the highlights of the last uh, week for me have been, well, it's a couple things. I had a a nice bottle of Barbaresco uh, the other night, made some lamb and decided to pop that open. A 2015 from a producer, uh, Ovello, that I like quite a bit. Uh, I'm sorry, Ovello is the vineyard, rather. Uh, Cantina del Pino is the the producer. And uh, just, you know, beautiful bottle of wine. Nice thing to have with, with the aforementioned wife and you know, just kind of savor over the course of an evening. Because for us, one of the things that's definitely true with our wine drinking these days is there's the like part of the bottle of wine you drink with dinner 
And then there's the rest of the bottle of wine that you drink when the kids are asleep. Because the truth is that dinner at our house these days is a brief affair with limited time to consume wine before the children one way or another need <laughs> some attention. So that was really lovely. Um, I, yeah, it's kind of the highlight. I'm sort of like, I think like everyone, you know, preparing for some nice wine on Thanksgiving. We're having a small gathering, so it won't be like a ton of wine, but um, probably we'll check back in next week with what, what we had for the holiday. And uh, yeah, I don't know. How about you, Joanna? Yeah. So I, I, I similar to you, not too much this week in terms of exceptional alcohol, but I did go to a 40th birthday dinner at Saga on Saturday night um, for my sister-in-law. And they had a, a number of their specialty cocktails. Saga. So you went to Saga for a 40th birthday mm-hmm. dinner that your parents took her to? No, my brother. Oh. Yes, through an intimate dinner party at That's Saga. It was it dope. was it was an exceptional experience. Like they know what they're doing there. Oh yeah. But the, obviously the drinks program at Saga is very good. It's run by Harrison Ginsburg, who was um, one of our Next Wave Award mm-hmm. recipients this year. Um, and I had uh, their Easy Money cocktail, which is a vodka-based cocktail with coconut, yuzu, lime leaf, and mm-hmm. soda, which is very refreshing. But they also had their Radical cocktail, which is tequila-based with raspberry, rhubarb, habanero, cherry, tomato, and lime. Nice. So that was just like overall the standout experience from this past week. Very cool. Yeah. What about you, Adam? So, you know, we are recording this before Thanksgiving. I was going to pretend that we had already recorded it after Thanksgiving because we were that committed and tell you what I plan on drinking in Thanksgiving, but you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, prior to this uh, recording, the only, I actually have only drank one night this entire week and it was for Tim McCurdy's birthday last weekend. Yes. Well, I probably drank enough for the entire week. So that's (laughs) that's why Um, we went to the Rockwell place. Yes. Which is a really great bar in Brooklyn, um, owned by Toby Caccini. And I had all the drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the standouts for me were I always love the Japanese, which is like this sort of like Mai Tai riff they do, which is right. really delicious with cognac. And then also the stage door Johnny, which is like their version of a Boulevardier and they serve it up. Um, and that was really delicious. And yeah, then, I mean, there were Aquavit shots. <laughs> Because Far too many aquavit Tim shots. Was, there was multiple aquavit shots. Yeah, like with beers, and I mean, it was a Tim thing. With I, beers, I, without beers, it was fun. Yeah, it was, was fun. fun. Good little crew. Uh, so, speaking of all the drinks, uh, some news broke on the twenty first of November that basically the TTB has agreed, after twenty plus years of lobbying by consumer advocacy groups that they are going to issue rulings on how they would like to see alcohol, calories, and ingredients displayed on wine, beer, and spirits. Labels. Labels, yeah, yeah. which is crazy, right? So they're basically saying this is going to happen. We're now going to issue a ruling as to how it's going to happen. Um, But I think especially for fine wine and fine spirits, this really upends everything. Because if all of a sudden on a bottle of that Barbaresco that you had to have that you had last weekend, Zach, you see like, I don't know, a thousand calories. That is just going to be insane. Now, what they also say they're going to do as part of the ruling is they're going to issue uh, how many servings are in the bottle. So Mm -hmm. like 
you know, we always say, oh, a bottle's like four to five glasses. Like, also, how are people's heads going to spin if all of a sudden, like, the TTB saying, no, 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 it's eight. Right. Right. Like, that's insane. Uh, they're going to do the same thing for spirits. How many servings inside? And then the calories are going to be based on the serving size. Right. And... Uh, so, you know, for for spirit, spirits might be fine because I, I have an anticipation they're going to say an ounce to an ounce and a half mm-hmm. of spirit is a serving size. And so the, people, people know that. Right. Pretty generally. And yeah. so those calories could be quite low, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but for wine, I can't imagine they're going to say anything less than like three ounces and probably more like four or five, in which case the calories could be quite high for people. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that's going to do to the market in general. Uh, it's kind of nuts. So yeah, what are, you, what, are you, what are your guys' thoughts? This is pretty crazy. I want to add a note here, which is I think one of the really the things that'll be really interesting about this is regards calorie counts and wine is that I think more than the specific calorie count on an individual bottle of wine, it's going to be the pretty big discrepancy or range that you might see in what we typically think of as a, a standard category. Because if you look at something like you know if you just Google like how many calories are in red wine you get a very generic response. But we know that across the many kinds of red wine that are made, including, let's say, some very popular red blends that might have some residual sugar in them, that number is not going to add up to what the sort of default Google search returns. Uh, some might be lower, some will probably be a fair bit higher. And that's where I think it's, it's that's one avenue that I'm really fascinated in is to see, does that prompt consumer choice, right? Does someone look at two bottles and all of a sudden it's like, well, this bottle of well-known national red blend is 175 calories a glass for five ounces. This other one is 125. I'm going to change what I buy based on those 50 calories a serving. And I suspect that might drive a lot of business. And I would imagine that producers are looking at this, really thinking about how they can, if they need to reformulate um, in those kinds of wines, how they will, because I mean, price is a big driver, obviously, in that category. But I have to imagine that as soon as calorie counts are widely available, that's going to drive a ton of business. Yeah. More I than think... in like, you know, high end wine, where I think if you're buying a 50 to $75 bottle of wine, are you going to really look at the calorie count as much as like, you know, the wine or the price or whatever? I, I, I dubious that it will drive consumer behavior as much there. I think that it, I think that the calorie count and the nutrition labels are. What's most notable about this, I think, for the other items, the allergens um, and ingredients, I don't know. I think that's useful, especially Mm -hmm. for people with allergies, right? And I believe in transparency with those things. Um, I think there was just a lot of language around keeping consumers in the dark um, in these petitions um, and that that, like this new ruling will help consumers make more informed decision. But what I worry about, especially with the calories and nutrition labels, like you said, is um, we've already seen like diet wine and light Mm -hmm. wine and diet spirits. (laughs) And I just feel like this will continue to expand that market um, in a way that's not great. Right. I I think also like what's going to, I think it's going to be really interesting. I think you're both bringing up really good points. Like, one, are we going to see this run to diet wine, which is going to be gross? Mm-hmm. Two, will the regular wine consumer not care? Especially, you know, the more I think about it, I started this conversation saying, um, I'm so curious to see what this ha- what happens to fine wine here. 
But actually, I'm going to take that back. I don't think fine wine will be affected yeah, as much. I don't think people will care. Yeah. I think if you're if you're drinking a Barolo or a Bordeaux or whatever, like you you're care. drinking it, you don't care. Yeah. It's going to fuck up commercial wine. Yeah. Like it's going to fuck it up. Yeah. And so much of that wine is like has mega purple in right. it and Especially residual if you sugar. I have and, to disclose the ingredients. Oh, it's going to be real bad. <laughs> um, and. That is going to be crazy. And that is where I think both of you are spot on. Like if one mass market, you know, commercial red blend versus another and this wine making team figures out how to get it 50 calories lower or figures out how to make it just as decadent but without mega purple or whatever, like it's going to be kind of an arms race, especially if this is what's happening. Again, I don't think it's going to – I think spirits are going to be the the best off here because I don't think a general consumer who – buys spirits is going to think the calories look that high. And then even if they look at the rum or the whiskey and it says caramel color, I don't think they're going to really care that much. But mega purple sounds really bad. Well, I think it's because we're seeing, we've already seen this in the spirits and beer space. Hard seltzer, things that are lower calorie, light beer, like that's been happening for a really long time. And I feel like people probably have a better sense of the calorie counts on a beer or, you know, I, th- I just feel like it's more widely known and that's why we've seen it already. Right. But I feel like with wine, yeah, um, that's going to be the most effective. Like what this. happens to like these Moscatos that are just filled with sugar and people start to see, I mean, look again, that hasn't stopped consumers from drinking Coke, but right. like, I do think there will be some sort of reaction. Or eating McDonald's. Exactly. It doesn't stop you. I mean, we put calorie counts on Big Macs and people are still like, oh, whatever. (laughs) Or damn. (laughs) But I think there are a couple of differences, a couple of things I want to point out here. One is there's a fundamental difference, I think, between the McDonald's scenario that you described where you're already at McDonald's and you're sort of like, well, here I am. I'm going to buy the thing I want and eat it versus as we're talking about shopping in a grocery store or online or wherever and making a purchase decision in part based on those that nutritional information. I mean, I'm sure you both remember, you know, there was a lot of that, you know, turn the box around advertising campaigns and stuff when we were kids targeting our parents to get them to buy different products based on, you know, the nutritional information that was uh, displayed on there. And I imagine there will be some of the same behavior with, wine consumers, especially as Adam pointed out, you know, in that sort of commercial grocery store sector. I ha- I have to say, I talked to a couple of people I know who are winemakers about this, both uh, when it was pending and now since I uh, just exchanged a couple messages with a friend who's a winemaker uh, today. And they all raised a couple of concerns about this. They're in, you know, more on the fine wine side. They're not necessarily concerned that their consumers are going to abandon ship over the nutritional information or the calorie counts on their labels. But they are very concerned about what the TTB is going to require in terms of testing. Because, again, Mm. this kind of ingredient and, well, ingredient testing or ingredient labeling may not be hard if you keep good records of what you put in, which these people do. But calorie counts, you know, are you going to have to you know, each individual skew, are you going to have to do testing to get the exact calorie count? Are you going to be able to use a range? I mean, think about this, right? The TTB currently requires you to put on your label, the uh, ABV of a, of a product, but you have a lot of leeway. Yeah. You know, you have about a point and a half either direction from the true number and also truthfully, the TTB never tests. Mm-hmm. So producers don't have to actually really put a lot of effort into testing their wine for 
the alcohol percentage. I mean, they need to know, and they do know, they can do the math simply from when they harvest. You know, there's a simple conversion from bricks or available sugar in the grape to what the finished alcohol will be. But they don't test it generally for the precise number because they don't need to and, you know, whatever. But if you have to test every single batch you're bottling, are you going to ha- are you going to have to do that to satisfy the TTB? Are they going to be checking this? What about if you're a, a distillery and you produce a bunch of individual, you know, single barrel bourbons or something? Right. Do you have to t- test each individual one? I mean, I don't think anyone is clear because again, the TTB has agreed that they're going to put rules in place. They have not released those rules, yet, so we will, yeah. of course, follow up when we have more information. But I do think that there are a lot of smaller producers that look at this as potentially a very potentially costly and onerous thing. They're not against the idea of providing this information to consumers. They are perhaps against the idea of having to spend a lot of money to provide this information that, frankly, a lot of consumers won't even pay attention to. Yeah. At least in their cases. I I think this is going to be a bitch. (laughs) I do. Mm -hmm. I I have a question for you guys about this that I was thinking about when this came out too. What happens to all of these famous spirits, these like liqueurs and stuff that have like proprietary recipes i think of like chartreuse famously right like Mm. two people alive at any given time know what the recipe is for chartreuse but if they have to list every ingredient on the label are they going to have to are they going to be able to say like you know natural herbs and herbs uh, yeah right whatever i don't know i i don't think you're gonna given that chartreuse famously has like 140 ingredients i can't imagine that you could fit them all on the label in the first place but like there are these kinds of things where i don't know that there's a lot of other examples where the ingredients are trade secrets as much as perhaps things that people would want to conceal as like the aforementioned mega purple. But I am fascinated to see also kind of just how much specificity is required to meet these, whatever these guidelines end up being. Right. Like a mash bill or something. Yeah. I have a feeling that maybe it's going to be like, if it's like, for example, for wine, it'll be something like, you know, organic grapes, but you sure. don't have to say organic Chardonnay grapes, mm-hmm. just organic grapes. And then like with, you know, cereal can, whatever, if you put yellow five in it or red 10, like that has to be listed. And then the sugar content will have to be listed, but the sugar content probably be broken out as like added sugar, naturally occurring sugar, right? Like you see on juice where it's like orange juice says this is naturally occurring sugar, 28 grams or whatever added sugar 10 grams mm-hmm. i think that will be what they have to do that's just my gut but i because I, I agree with you zach i don't think there's any way that in a lot of these they'll be able to like an amaro or any that just yeah. lists out yeah, every single exactly. they're gonna say absolutely not and then we're not gonna come to the u.s if we have to do that and people aren't gonna you know the u.s i don't think it's gonna require like it's just gonna be it's gonna be a mess it's gonna be a mess hmm. do you think yeah. that these that the like they'll be able to like the labels will be different for the brands that exist like outside of the US and then they'll have their US label. Yeah, or like your importer is going to be responsible for like slapping something on the bottle. Right. Like like something at the bottom. You know, just like you see like imported by whatever, maybe they have to slap on the bottom like, you know, the nutrition label cuz right. But it's just oh, it's so, so weird. It's what, so weird. I mean, what do you think of the like consumer transparency part of all of this? Well, that's what I was curious about. I was like, they say that, that, like, the groups that were lobbying for this are saying, like, this is to help people make more informed choices and help you consider the amount of alcohol you're, you're imbibing. Consuming. Yeah. I just don't think it's going to work. It doesn't informed work with anything else. Decisions. Yeah. I think there is a, a small point in favor of this kind of move, which is that I do think that there is some percentage of people who really don't think about the 
even just the raw calorie count of things they drink, and that can be alcoholic or non. I think it's very easy, though, when a, a bottle of wine, a can of beer, a, a bottle of spirit, whatever, has none of that information on it to sort of trick yourself into believing that the calories and such don't exist. Mm. Now, I I agree that putting that information on there might not change a ton of consumer behavior. And I hate being like, well, anecdotally, I, but like, I will give an example from my own life. When I used to go shop at Costco from time to time, uh, I was partial to a Costco hot dog. And then they put up the nutritional information. And every single time I go there, I look and I'm like, man, I used to love a Costco hot dog, but um, that's like 800 calories. I'm not eating that. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that there are some people for whom having that information will perhaps allow them to make informed decisions. I don't think it's going to be a huge segment of the alcohol drinking public. And I do think that, you know, it's very hard to balance the potentially real consumer benefit or, you know, need for protection versus the burden on the industry and the just sort of like, what are we doing here vibe of this whole kind of ruling. But I think, you know, the three of us are not may have a hard time looking at this and seeing it from the perspective of, you know, maybe some of the people who are being advocated for by these groups. I, I just, I don't find myself identifying with them very much, but I'm recognize that I'm not probably the people, the constituencies that they're serving. Yeah. What do you think of, I don't know, this is maybe a lesser consideration, but like aesthetically how this changes things too. It needs to look ugly. Right. I just keep thinking about like how, it looks on the back of a Coke bottle or things like that. Like it just, it's ugly. And I wonder if like the way that like, will, will every can of beer have to have it or will it just have to be on the outside of the box? Back, right. <laughs> like will, it's really interesting to see how this is going to, to go. Out, yeah. And on wine, it's just gonna, and like, will there be a threshold? Like for example, in New York state, they ultimately rule, or no, New York city, sorry. They ruled that you only have to show calorie counts if you're a ch considered a chain, right? That's why Houston's famously changed their name, right? Because that, therefore, in New York, they couldn't be viewed as a chain. That's why they changed their name to Hillstone. Hillstone. I didn't right. know that. Yeah, that's why they changed that's the name. That's fascinating. Um, and so will there be something like if you are from X wine regions and you're priced at Y price or whatever – you don't have to. So like or like are, production. Right. Like if you're small production, whatever, like is there gonna be sort of some some sort of like you have to file it with us. We still want to know, but you don't have to label it. Label it. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Will there be exemptions for smaller producers? That that's a good question that I I don't know the answer to. On the flip side to this, I do think there is a point to be made that like the alcohol industry's argument for not doing this is basically we haven't had to do it before, but basically anything else you can consume in this country has to have ingredient labeling, um, you know, if it's produced at a certain scale. Yeah. And it has always been sort of weird that alcohol just kind of has skated by on the fact that it like is alcohol. I mean, I do think that there is an argument that like if this is a thing we are requiring of all other consumable goods in this country – we probably should also require it of, of alcohol. I don't know. I, I'm I'm somewhat sympathetic to that notion. I also will say to the question of the aesthetics, uh, people who are listening to this who are collectors of things, maybe now is the time to you know stock up. I'm sure those pre-ingredient mm. labeling bottles will yeah. have extra value uh, down the road. Uh, just a just a guess, but I think it's a pretty safe one. So interesting. Yeah. Well, 
let us know your thoughts. Like, do you, will you look at the ingredient labeling? Will you look at the calorie count? Is, do you think it's going to give you pause at all? Do you think that we are overreacting to wine as we think the one that's going to face the most sort of blow, not blowback, but sort of repercussions versus something like spirits? Do you think that it will matter just as much in spirits or beer? Uh, so let us know what you think. Podcast at vinepair.com. Love to hear what you all think. Love reading your emails and getting them. And uh, Zach and Dren, I'll talk to you on Friday. Have a nice week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.